Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, Alex Robinson, founder and CEO of Juniper Square. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Excited to be here. So Alex, by, by way of introduction, what is Juniper Square and uh, how did you come to start it? Yeah, so Juniper Square is an investment management uh, software platform for owners of commercial real estate. So if you own a a, a building like you know 101 California in, in San Francisco or Rockefeller Center in New York, uh, that building's typically going to be owned by you know, large complex uh, series of institutional owners. And our software is the system that manages that ownership, connects the people who provide the money uh, to the building with the people who who buy it and, and management. And that kind of, uh, that broad category of software is called investment management. That's what we do. And what's, what's, the, uh, what's the broader vision for, for, for the company? Yeah, ultimately what we're trying to do is to, you know, build a more uh, functioning liquid transparent and efficient marketplace for commercial real estate initially, but really the vision is for uh, all illiquid assets that are owned in these complex partnership structures, the likes of which are managed in our software. And the end state vision of what we're working toward uh, is to make it as easy for an everyday investor to buy a share of a building as it is to buy a share of a stock like Microsoft. Totally awesome. Why don't you give more on your background in terms of when did you realize that this was the idea that you were going to spend the next decade working on? Sure. So I, um, I spent my career in the technology industry. I started work at Microsoft uh, about almost 20 years ago now to date myself. And, uh, but I come from a family background in real estate. So growing up in high school, real estate was kind of what I knew. It's what I did on the weekends. Uh, it, it's how I earned uh, you know, money on the side and that sort of thing. And so it was really kind of in my DNA at a small scale. I mean, to be clear, my dad was a dentist who on the side had kind of built his own real estate business. So we're not talking, uh, you know, uh, Starwood properties here or something, but I was up and close with the real estate, you know, office, multifamily apartment buildings, retail, and, and came to understand it in an intimate way and always appreciated it. And I loved how tangible it was. And once you understand how to underwrite the uh, financial components of a real estate investment, what you spend a lot of your time thinking about are macroeconomic topics, where are we at in you know, the overall business cycle, uh, demographic topics, you know, where's the, say, supply of housing relative to uh, anticipated demand, and then kind of questions of anthropology, like where do people want to be and why? Where do they want to work? How's that changing? This is obviously a really big topic right now with COVID. And so I, I just love that aspect of real estate, but I also love technology. And so I spent, uh, you know, the last twenty years in 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 the technology sector in one way or another. Uh, Juniper Square is actually my third startup. Uh, and, and so by the the third time round, I made plenty of mistakes on my my first two. I knew that I wanted to kind of come back and marry these two passions that this this love of real estate and interest in the the sector. A lot of people don't know this, but it's the largest asset class globally. It's the second largest asset class in the US. So it's just huge market. And, and to marry that with 
what I'd learned about building startups and, and kind of my love of technology. And that, that's how these two worlds kind of came together. Yeah. You've gone super deep in commercial real estate, uh, obviously. What do people not fully appreciate it or, or what do people need to know uh, about it to sort of have a better mental model or understanding of, of how it works? Yeah. So I think the first thing is the scale. A, a lot of people don't realize this, but to, to just kind of frame it up for you. So the largest asset class in the U.S. is public equities. That's about $30, $35 trillion uh, in, in total market capitalization. The next biggest asset class behind it is commercial real estate, which is on the order of 15 to $20 trillion of, of total asset value. And then, you know, the value of all privately held companies like, you know, a Juniper Square is down in the order of single digit trillions, like say six to eight trillion. So a lot of people have this inverted in their head and they think that, that, that there's sort of more market capitalization, say in private companies than there is in, in commercial real estate. And that's just wrong. In fact, commercial real estate is sort of three times the size of the uh, private sector, uh, 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 private companies. And then on a global basis, it is the largest asset class. And so the first thing to get your head wrapped around is just the sheer scale of the, of the, the market value that is tied up in this sector and how critically important it is to both the US and the global economy. The second thing to understand is the diversity within the sector. And it, it, you know, there's not one monolithic thing called commercial real estate. There's apartment buildings, there are uh, industrial warehouses, there are office buildings, there are you know, retail centers and, and locations. And, and each of these is really a very distinct and separate uh, food group. In the real estate industry, they call these product types. And you tend to have specialization and focus, generally speaking, in the industry around both uh, these these product types, these uh, office versus industrial, et cetera. But then the, the third thing, uh, and this is where people specialize as well, is geography. So the, the industry is incredibly fragmented, and it's very geographically uh, focused. So you might build, as an investment manager in real estate, a real specialization of knowledge and relationships and so forth. In your local market, let's say you're, you know, you're in St. Louis and you've really achieved a level of specialization in St. Louis. Well, that doesn't translate over to Miami, Florida, uh, in, in any way. And so, this fragmentation has inherently limited the the development of a of a big liquid financial market around real estate. And that's kind of the promise of what software can help address over time. Talk, talk about how do you sort of navigated the idea maze with with Juniper Square? What was the original concept? What was the first insight, and how how did it sort of grow from there? Yeah, I, I think this is yeah, this is actually where a lot of the work has gone in because the insight's fairly simple, and many uh, people had this insight uh, even around the same time. So Juniper Square was started in 2014. Uh, the Jobs Act was passed in 2012, and the Jobs Act uh, changed the the securities law for the really the first time in, in, in several decades in a meaningful way, with the intention of enabling uh, more investors to participate in. Uh, you know, ownership of companies and assets like real estate. And around that time, following the Jobs Act, uh, there were tons of crowdfunding companies that got started, especially in, in the real estate sector. And everybody had the same core insight, which is, wow, you know, here, here's essentially the second largest financial market in the US. And, and in the first large, largest financial market in public equities, uh, the market has become so efficient that you can essentially trade for, you know, zero uh, in, in transactions costs. You've got perfect liquidity. You could buy something, sell it the next minute. Uh, you've got perfect information. Everything you need to kind of for buyers and sellers to determine price is is right there at your fingertips. So the, the market has become fully digitized with virtually every component that you need to drive maximum efficiency to the point where 
you know, traders locate their uh, you know physical office location you know feet closer to the data center to try to get some kind of edge. So so that's how far the public equities market has come in the last twenty to thirty years of digitization, and none of that has reached the second largest asset class, which is real estate, where you know, transactions are, are, it's not an exaggeration to say that FedEx packages are still, you know, sent back and forth with paperwork that's, you know, executed and reviewed by lawyers. And instead of, you know, one or $2 trades, you've got tens of thousands of dollars in transactions costs. You've got no liquidity uh, in, in the market. Once you buy a real estate building or you buy into a fund that owns a real estate building, generally you can't sell that in, in, until the investment manager you work with wants to sell it. And and so and then you've got no transparency to determine a price, even if you did want to sell it. And so the core insight was, well, gosh, how do you make these very large private markets look and behave more like the public equities? How would you enable liquidity? How would you enable more transparency? How would you enable a, a more efficient market with you know less in transactions costs and less in coordination costs, where buyers and sellers can find each other? And a lot of people at the time following the Jobs Act thought, ah, well, I'll just, we'll create these crowdfunding companies. We'll put, we'll create a website and we'll put some deals up on that website and people will come to the website and, and we'll enable the buyers and sellers to meet that way. And we'll sort of try to build the market uh, from scratch. And we looked at that and we said, ah, there's a lot of adverse selection uh, at, at play here where if you're a really good uh, investor in real estate, you consistently earn uh, really kind of market beating returns, you have a line of investors out the door who want to work with you. And if you're a good investor, you know, somebody who's in high demand, like a, a university, university endowment, like Stanford University, let's say, or a big public pension, like the uh, uh, California State Teacher Retirement System, you have a line of, of investment managers out the door who want to work with you. And so when you create this website, your crowdfunding company, you're going to get the very worst uh, of both sides of the market. And that's going to kind of be a, a losing proposition. And our approach was to say, well, the only way you can fundamentally solve this problem is you, you kind of have to onboard the supply in the market. You have to become the system of record for, for all the buildings, for the ownership of all the buildings. You have to become the tool that's used by everybody in the market to manage and, and represent their ownership, to move money uh, between them and their investors. Uh, and then from that foundation, you can then help your customers find new investors, uh, enable more efficient transactions. And so we looked at it as fundamentally a software problem to solve. Uh, and the software problem to solve is um, Excel is the tool that's used uh, throughout the industry to do this today. So you have to build software that's better than Excel uh, and, and get everybody to use it. And, and, and from that foundation that you can then deliver financial markets innovation. So it's a bit of kind of uh, go slow to go fast later on. And so we took a very different approach than others did. But the core insight was, hey, how do you make it as easy to buy and sell a share of a building uh, as it is to buy and sell a share of a stock? Totally. We were talking earlier about how, how commercial real estate is super diverse. How do you make one software product applicable to all these different types of investors? Uh, the first thing we do is uh, we try to narrow the scope of the problem. So the problem that we're working on, it really isn't even actually about real estate. It's about a complex private ownership of a liquid assets. And it turns out there's about $100 trillion of wealth in the world that, that fits this criteria. That is, it's owned privately, it's not liquid, it's not transparent, you, you can't really buy or sell you know, you know, your ownership stake in the underlying assets. And so the first thing we do is you have to bound that problem. You can't go look at $100 trillion of asset value and say, oh, we're going to just become the system 
uh, for all of this simultaneously. And so, you know, we focused in on real estate because that's where I had a background. That's where we had insight. But also, as it turns out, as we study the problem, uh, real estate is one of the most information intensive asset classes. So if you're a, a large institutional owner of real estate, like a university endowment or a, a pension fund, then you expect to be able to understand something like the vacancy rate across your multifamily portfolio or what the average rent is across your office portfolio. And this means that across all of the fund managers that you work with and then all the buildings that they own, you have to somehow aggregate all this data and make sense of it and get it into kind of a standard format. And that's just not true in other asset classes. No one's trying to aggregate all of their hedge fund strategies into a a, a kind of a single monolithic view. So there's this information intensity problem uh, in real estate. There's this fragmentation problem in real estate that I talked about before, which is uh, creates conditions in which if you're able to aggregate the supply of a highly fragmented market, you can create a lot more value than a market that's not aggregated. And then the third thing is that the real estate industry has historically been slow to adopt technology. It's kind of been viewed uh, and, and even self-described, they'll sort of self-describe with pride sometimes uh, the degree to which they're laggards in, in technology adoption. So what this means for a company like us is that typically speaking, we're not displacing uh, you know, historical software systems that customers have invested in, but instead it's more greenfield. We're replacing Excel. We're kind of the first software system that they're adopting. It's something like 90% of customers who come into Juniper Square. We have more than 800 general partners who now use our software and more than a trillion dollars of real estate value. So about a trillion and a quarter uh, of real assets on the platform. 90% of that is coming in from Excel. Totally. Maybe just uh, zooming out a a little bit, say more about what a more liquid market for real estate will will look like. Like what are the second order, third order effects or, and how how can we see that? Sure. Well, so today access to the market is, is really quite constrained, you know, despite the, despite the, the sheer size of the market, Generally speaking, it's, it's pretty difficult for capital uh, to access the market because of this fragmentation issue that I talked about, because of the opacity, you really have to invest heavily as, a, a, as an allocator you know, to get access to the market. You can go buy REITs. There are REITs that trade publicly uh, on exchanges, but most about 85% of the real estate in the US is owned privately, not, not via public REITs. So if you want real exposure to the asset class, you kind of got to work hard uh, to get into it. And so uh, that fundamentally limits the supply of capital uh, uh, to the industry. And, 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 and this is on top of an industry that's just seen a, a complete sea change in the flow of capital uh, over the last, say, two decades, where, you know, if you wind, the block, wind back the clock to like 1980, there wasn't an institutional owner that owned real estate in their portfolio, right? And it wasn't really until Yale with its endowment model in the 90s started to popularize this idea that you hold these counter-cyclical assets in your portfolio to increase overall risk-adjusted return, right? So timber and real estate and so forth. And so, you know, kind of from the mid-90s onward, there's been this huge inflow of capital into uh, commercial real estate uh, from, from institutional allocators, institutional pools of money, big pension funds, et cetera, that, that didn't exist, you know, say 20 years ago. And then more recently, there's been a big flow of, of offshore capital into U.S. real estate. That's been a big part of the story of the last kind of business cycle here of asset price uh, inflation. And yet still, the, the market is, is really constrained. And you see this, for example, in private companies, right, where 
you know, like Snowflake just went public yesterday. It's whatever it is, Friday, September 18th, and had this this huge IPO. And and the IPO markets are are, are just, you know, incredibly vibrant right now. But I think a lot of that comes from the fact that you have you know, huge global supply supply of capital that's that's chasing these relatively scarce opportunities. So if you're able to network the market and uh, and, and digitize the ownership uh, so that you know somebody could sell a share of a fund or sell a share of a building uh, and, and lower these transactions costs and bring liquidity to the market, then you really would be able to increase supply of, of capital available to that market quite substantially. Like there's a whole class of investors, whole classes of pools of capital that that just don't participate in the market today due to the liquidity constraints, right? Most of the the, the 401k capital, most a lot of the retirement uh, pools of capital don't participate today um, in, in this sector because of these structural constraints. So the net effect of this for managers in the market ought to be over time, a much lower cost of capital. And I think that's the biggest, uh, probably, uh, effect that we would see uh, from this kind of of change. And that's that's a good thing. That means more buildings will get built, more housing will get built, more uh, projects can get funded at a lower uh, supply capital. And then the other thing that we'll see is that I think there'll be, just as there was in the hedge fund industry, a greater ability in the future for uh, investors to differentiate alpha from beta. Right, so it'll be it'll be more clear, you know, which investment managers in the market are really delivering alpha and, and who's delivering beta, and those that are delivering alpha will really see a disproportionate share uh, of capital flow to them, and so these are some of the, the second order effects that that we anticipate happening uh, in kind of the coming decade. You, you touched on it a, a bit, but maybe we can go even deeper. How do you expect software to change sort of investment management more uh, more broadly? Yeah, I mean, so so the future that we see is. You know, there's a thing that you hire an investment manager to do, ideally, which is generate alpha, right? Or at least, at least give you access to beta that you can't get elsewhere. You can't go today buy a index fund of of, of private real estate; it doesn't exist. So you might hire a manager just to give you beta because you can't get it elsewhere. But ideally, you're you're hiring someone, you're paying them because they're giving you some sort of alpha. So so that's the core thing, right? You're hiring them to uh, deliver investment returns, and today. You know, being in the business of investment management it means you you have to bundle all these other things. You have to be good operationally at fund management and these really complex you know fund accounting topics. You've got to staff up a big back office that uh, a big IT department to sort of aggregate the data up from all your properties just so you can you know make some sense of it. And the the future that we see is one where these things have become unbundled more where you know, it, it just it fundamentally doesn't make sense, for example, for every one of the tens of thousands of investment managers in the market to, to be rolling their own back office, right? Rolling their own payments infrastructure. This, this just does not make any sense whatsoever. And so in a similar way, the Amazon kind of unbundled e-commerce in this way and said, okay, well, you know, we'll become the selling platform and the logistics platform and the distribution platform and actually the customer aggregation platform as well. And then we'll have third-party sellers. We see something similar coming to the investment management market, right? Where you're sort of unbundling these concepts of the container and the management of the container that the investment sits in, which really ultimately 
will be managed by software and, and will be managed at tremendous scale. Because just think about the scale we're talking about here, $100 trillion. And separating that from the actual generation of alpha, right, which is making good decisions, timing your bets uh, appropriately with a market cycle, picking the right geographies, picking the right product types. And, and, and so that's the kind of unbundling that we see eventually coming uh, to this asset class. And it's something we want to enable for the customer because the customer, our customer is the GP. And now increasingly we have an LP product too. So we serve both sides of the market. And you know the customer at the end of the day, they want to be focused on real estate. They want to be focused on buying and selling and developing buildings. All the rest of this stuff you know, the back office and the data and the IT and everything else, it's kind of a necessary cost for them of doing business that doesn't create competitive differentiation for them, right? Generating returns creates competitive differentiation and it's kind of a hassle. And so our our future state is one where we handle that uh, and, and largely handle that through software. And that frees the customer up to do what they do best and hopefully improves returns and improves wealth available for all of society as a result. Yeah. Let's talk about everything we've been talking about in light of COVID. How, how has that sort of impacted the the market? You know, a little bit on, on short term in terms of talk about a little bit about short term, but really what it means going forward. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think you, you know we we track this fairly closely. We uh, we do a monthly survey uh, with our customers where we look at things like uh, rent collections and loan workouts, and uh, and we look at it by by product type and and, and geography and so forth. So we have a reasonable lens on the kind of what we're seeing in the market, you know, across at least a trillion and a quarter that's managed on our software, which is a pretty significant, uh, sizable pool of, of assets. And you know, early on, I'd say in March, there was real concern about the market following the great unwinding that happened after the kind of the shock of Lehman collapsing and uh, in the Great Recession, where uh, there was just sort of a, a fire sale of assets that led. Uh, uh, prices uh, to drop that triggered covenants that triggered more selling, which triggered more uh, price erosion, uh, and we didn't see that this time around. So we saw uh, lenders being far more uh, accommodative and, and and willing to do workouts and and, and give on covenants uh, than we saw that, that then was characterized by the last recession. And I think you know the last recession is still close enough that a lot of people who are still active in these jobs today remember it. And remember, kind of the the mistakes that they made, and, uh, and lenders don't want to be owning these assets. So we saw a lot early on of lenders being much more flexible on on, on not wanting to foreclose on assets that weren't uh, collecting uh, rent and, and sort of meeting their uh, covenants, even in these really hard hit sectors like retail and hospitality, where you know revenues uh, for some of the tenants in these buildings like, literally went to zero, uh, and rent collections, uh, generally speaking. Uh, came, went close to zero. Uh, so that, that's one big difference that we've seen, which is especially important uh, given the sort of the, the leverage lending that now exists kind of post Dodd-Frank. Uh, and that, that has kind of held true for the last six months here uh, post-COVID. The second thing we've seen really surprisingly is that people keep paying rent. Um, I mean, we, we have a 25,000 square foot office in San Francisco, another, I think, 12,000 foot office in Austin, you know, none of which have been occupied since March 9th when we went to remote work and we've continued to pay rent as a tenant. And, and that's actually been the typical uh, experience. So most of our office uh, landlords, most multifamily landlords are generally collecting uh, rents within acceptably normal 
levels. We're not seeing mass waves of defaults yet. Now, in the multifamily sector, we'll see how, you know, as as the uh, lowering of federal benefits that were kind of propping up a lot of these rent payments uh, starts to work through the system. And as these we get to the other side of some of these eviction moratoria, I, I would expect that we would see uh, the defaults increase. And um, and there's certainly a lot of dire pro- uh, projections on kind of forthcoming evictions as these moratoria uh, expire. But, but what we've seen is, is sort of this strange, outside of retail and hospitality, this kind of strange normalcy to the other sectors. And then, of course, within uh, sectors like light industrial, uh, which uh, due to the tremendous growth in e-commerce, that, that sector's on fire. Uh, and, and, and everyone is gobbling up you know, from, from Amazon on down, trying to find uh, uh, industrial warehouse space that's close to uh, their customers so they can get you know, goods, and ser- goods, goods delivered. So, so that's kind of what we've seen. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, there's been a lot of news. And in fact, our company's in the middle of trying to figure out what our policy is going to be on remote work when we come back from COVID. We're remote at least through summer of 2021. But we haven't yet seen uh, some of these, you know, higher profile uh, tech companies like, you know, um, uh, Pinterest and, and Uber and so forth that are putting big blocks of, of space on the market that they had previously leased. We haven't seen that come through, at least in our data that we're tracking yet, but, but I won't be surprised if we do. Say any more about what you expect sort of the aftershocks from, from COVID to be in terms of like what, what will go back to normal, normal versus what will be sort of changed uh, Change forever. Well, I, I personally think there's a bit of an overreaction to this shift to remote work, and I, I, we sort of anticipate that office work of some time of some kind uh, is going to continue. The benefits of in-person collaboration are real. You know, I mean, it is leaps and bounds better uh, to work remotely today than it was ten years ago. And, uh, you know, our company has made the shift to fully remote work, you know, with no advanced planning, like no, any other company. And it's been remarkably seamless and it's been remarkably productive. And yet we know that a lot of our employees are craving uh, in-person interaction. And there's a sense that there's just a certain class of work that can be done a lot better uh, by gathering in person. So I think that the popular narrative on Twitter or in the press of, wow, you know, the future is going to be completely remote and there's just going to be a globally distributed workforce and all we ever do is, is connect up in the cloud. I think it's a bit overstated. There's real tangible benefits to in-person collaboration, which are not going to go away. And so the question is, what's the form going to take when we come back? And I, in terms of our company, at least, which I think is, is probably representative, it'll be characterized probably by more office locations, right? So less uh, square footage uh, centralized in one headquarters and maybe a little bit less square footage, but something comparable just distributed out to more locations. I mean, we've had something like 40 to 50% of our workforce uh, relocate out of San Francisco during COVID, uh, some temporarily, some wanting to make personal moves, but the people have have distributed out. And the reality is, is, is it is easier to support remote work from uh, lots of different clusters We'll see, I think, a lot more flexibility of people being able to, to work from home, and that may reduce the overall, uh, the overall demand for office. 
the, I, I certainly don't think it's it's going to go away in the way that a lot of uh, uh, people talk about and expect. Totally. And and Virginia, you you started with 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 real estate. Maybe we talk compare it with uh, what's similar or different from other private markets, and and how do you think about where you might want to go next? Sure. Uh, yeah. So we've started with real estate, and we kind of have all asset classes within real estate uh, uh, pretty deeply represented now uh, on our network, and we have uh, customers in Europe and customers in Asia. Although predominantly our customer base is still uh, in North America, uh, but you know, real estate's a global asset class, so we will expand uh, geographically uh, with more of a focus on Europe and Asia. And then for us, the adjacent asset classes that are very similar, they're often kind of managed by the same person at the ultimate provider of capital at the allocator, uh, would be other real asset classes like infrastructure, uh, natural resources. Uh, you know, most of the energy industry is owned in these types of complex private partnership structures uh, that I've described, uh, timber, uh, agriculture. Uh, so, so real assets is, is very much, and we have customers in these uh, asset classes today. And, and there's, there's really very little product difference to whether it's an oil and, from, from our perspective, in terms of the technology as to whether it's an oil and gas well that's owned in a complex structure or whether it's a building. Uh, and so it's really more about, you know, how much go-to-market execution complexity uh, can the company handle at once and, and, and not wanting uh, to become too diffuse in, uh, in, in terms of effort. Uh, so we've tried to stay very focused on real estate and we've, until we feel we've sent, uh, done something pretty meaningful on both sides of the market for both the, the general partners who run and manage the funds and the limited partners who provide the capital. And, and we feel like we're, we're reaching that point. So we'll, we'll start to move uh, into other asset classes uh, relatively soon. And then, and then the next kind of concentric circle beyond that uh, is really private equity and, and private debt. And we actually do have a bunch of private debt uh, customers today, but kind of post Dodd-Frank, there's been this explosion in uh, kind of the, the, the private you know, non-bank uh, debt market. There's thousands of managers out there now that have funds for leveraged lending. Uh, so uh, th- those are kind of the next concentric circle out and then uh, ultimately private equity. Hedge funds are uh, quite a bit different in terms of their characteristics and their needs and uh, and also just how the market dynamics. Most hedge funds are are third party uh, administered. Almost zero, you know, zero real estate funds are uh, very very few. And uh, and the the hedge fund industry of all the alternative asset classes uh, has been the best served from a technology perspective over the last twenty years. And you know, the, what they do is different. Their compliance uh, needs are different. So hedge funds seem sort of a a, a bit of a, a step in a different direction. But certainly from where we are today in real estate to real assets to to private debt to to private equity is is very much on a roadmap. Let, let's pretend we are running a you know real estate tech real estate focused venture fund looking for venture scale businesses in in, the, in this space or sort of adjacent spaces. Besides some of the things we, we've talked about, what, what would your thesis be, or what would your requests for startups be, or, or what would your approach, or how, how would you think about it? I guess the way that I think about it is, um, well, I can make a few comments on it. Uh, there has been this kind of Cambrian explosion of, of of what some people call property tech or prop tech uh, startups out there that are focused on that, the real estate sector, uh, everything from you know building three D models of, of of spaces that you can tour virtually to like new types of 
you know, key fobs and locking systems to, to companies like ours. And uh, there haven't been that many uh, really breakout companies at scale. There's a company called uh, VTS, which does uh, uh, leasing management and is 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 expanding in towards uh, a marketplace uh, around leasing to compete with incumbents uh, like CoStar. There is, I'd probably put us in that category on the investment management side. So one theme that I would say is we, I want to look for startups that are attacking the, the sort of the core functions of the industry today, right? And you can really break a real estate firm down into, you know, a, a few basic things. They, you know, they need to raise money uh, to go uh, pursue their investment strategies. They need to buy and sell assets. If they're a developer, they develop them and they need to lease those assets up. That's it. Everything else is is, is kind of secondary. And so, uh, you know, a company like VTS is focused on the leasing and a company like us is focused on uh, the capital. So one core thesis would be to look for big opportunities that will change the way those core functions of real estate uh, operate. And there, the, this Cambrian explosion of prop tech, I think, in my point of view, has been characterized by a lot of kind of features and in, in solution of problems that are really ancillary to these just core basic bits of, um, of how real estate works. So that'd be one thing. The second thing would be, and you know, I'm, I'm biased in this, but certainly, you know, we have a lot of uh, close friends that are, you know, in and around this sector doing this kind of property investing that you're talking about. Is that there are a lot of opportunities that are this blend of kind of traditional venture-backed software uh, and capital markets and kind of investing opportunities. So, if if there's going to be fundamental changes in the in, in the use of space, let's say, or, or, or how people are are interacting with the real estate and what they need from it, it's not always the case that the way to achieve venture returns is by investing in software that will, uh, uh, say, facilitate or enable that change, but, but to also invest in capital markets opportunities, uh, ways of, of investing to exploit uh, those changes uh, that emerge. So, so for example, uh, you know, uh, uh, Travis Kalanick, the Uber founder, has got this uh, kind of mobile kind of cloud kitchens strategy uh, for uh, th- that is that is essentially a reflection of what I'm talking about, which is if you if you sort of make this bet on the change of of technology, uh, changing the need, changing the use of space, now all of a sudden a restaurant could be mo- you know a, a cloud kitchen that moves around and is delivered uh, close to the to the customer. That that's where I would be focusing my time and effort. That's where I think you'll see the the, the most significant returns. And again, I'd come back to you know like the venture asset class. So venture, for example, is within the Alternatives umbrella, but it's really small, right? It's it's it's, it's a quite a small asset class as compared to these other ones that we're discussing. So there's you know there's generating IRR and there's generating uh, a return, and then there's just absolute dollars that you generate. And a lot of these strategies that focus more on investing around the the disruption and the change in, in use of space can generate just much more significant absolute dollar returns uh, than than even some of the best software. Investments can uh, just given the the denominator effect of, of writing much bigger checks. I would essentially build a firm that was pursuing strategies along those two vectors, basically. And and a lot of people have, have tried the approach that you're trying with Juniper before. Why, why will it, is it succeeding now when it hasn't in the past? So the timing question or market question, and then also mm-hmm. you know anything sort of noticeable about the, about the approach in terms of differentiation. 
Sure. Yeah, well, I think you can look at you can look at the timing question and say, well, you know, why now? Why why is this a good uh, a good time to do this? And you know, in the real estate industry, there's uh, there so you can look at that from you know where are we at in terms of the business cycle, but then also you know where are we at in terms of the the technology adoption cycle. And and as I said, this industry has tended to be uh, a laggard uh, industry, and so you can wind back the clock like just a decade or a little more than a decade, and inside of you know uh, the leadership of, of a lot of these companies, th- there might not even have been in the late aughts uh, comfort with online transactions. Period. You know, for banking or uh, let alone a, a kind of a complex financial transaction uh, taking place online. And so I think there's been a a, a change in the mentality and a change in the thinking uh, within the industry where they have caught up to this idea of, well, actually, you know, things that happen in the cloud or things that happen online, that maybe they are actually more secure than things that happen in kind of an offline uh, and more trusted than things to happen in an offline way. And, and so th- that's an important, that's an important change. Uh, another important change in, in terms of the timing is that the sector's seen just tremendous growth. So there's, there's, you know, tens of thousands of companies out there that have grown very significantly without the proper software systems to support that growth. And so they're experiencing the pain of, you know, managing all these funds, managing all these investors in a way that they just weren't even a decade, even a decade ago. And then, of course, there's the element of, you know, AWS and and other cloud providers enabling companies like ours uh, to pursue these niche markets that historically have seemed very small. And I used to work in strategy at Microsoft. So we would look at, you know, when do we want to go vertical? And for us, a vertical was like financial services, you know, not, not the commercial real estate sector uh, within alternative assets, within within financial services. And so what's different, I think now, and this is nothing that's unique to us, and there's a lot of vertical SaaS companies that are pursuing this, but if you characterize a market in the way that Microsoft would look at a market, you know, we say, how many users could there be of Office or, you know, how many SharePoint licenses could we sell to, you know, backstop those users? And you look at a market like commercial real estate and it's laughably small. I mean, our, our customers often have five, seven users of our software total. They might have, you know, three to five employees total. And so when you look at the market by users, it's, it, it's so small that you would never even spend five minutes trying to build a, a technology solution for it. But when you look at a vertical, uh, as we have done, and you say, what's the value of the commerce that's happening in that vertical? And, and how is that commerce getting done today? Commercial real estate is actually one of the biggest markets out there. And it's, it's, it's definitely one of the biggest markets that really has yet to become digitized. And so the, the why now thing comes back to, well, there's a lot of enabling forces plus a change in the business model thinking where, where we say, well, we don't care about number of users. We don't price based on the number of users. We care about the AUM. We care about the assets. We price on the assets and, and, and we're helping move money. And we're, so we're, we're interested in the flow of commerce. And, and the real estate industry is an industry that turns over fi- in the, just in the US, $500 billion, the transaction value a year on a base of 15 to 20 trillion. There aren't many markets out there of this size and scope. That's the why now piece. As to what we do that's different, I think one of the, the, the main things that's different in, in our approach is to, uh, it, it's really, it's kind of how we built our software. It's a data model uh, topic. And that is to look at, uh, you know, historically software providers, there's, there's actually 
three or four pretty significant uh, kind of incumbent software providers to the real estate industry. And historically, they focused their core of their history and, and the origins of the company were focused on providing property management software. It's the software that you'd you know, record the lease details in and you know, pay the plumber who came to fix the leaky pipe at the apartment building out of. And that's an important category, but, but it's, it's pretty far afield from the world of, of global flows of capital and, uh, and investors and so forth. And uh, so a lot of companies have historically looked at their customer as, you know, let's say the back office inside of, a, of an investment firm. And we've looked at our customer as the investment. And uh, the investment that owns the asset just has a bunch of different users. It's got the person that provides money to that investment. It's got the, that's the LP. It's got the person who uh, manages and, and, and buys and sells that invest investment. That's the GP. Uh, it, it would have other third parties like lawyers and accountants and uh, fund administrators. And, and when you view the world that way, uh, which is a very important way to view it, because if you want to enable one party ultimately to sell uh, to another party, then the concept of the investment has to be this kind of immutable concept, then it really changes your thinking. And so uh, the approach that we've taken is, is to say, well, you know, there's providers of capital and there's users of capital in the market, and we need to connect them around a common registry of ownership of, of these assets. And that's very different. It's a very different approach to software design. Uh, to how you think about organizing data for the industry uh, than any of the incumbent providers. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that makes us very, uh, I think, unique relative to the incumbency. And, and maybe in closing here, are there any sort of unique company building principles that you've, uh, that you've picked up on and that you think are generalizable perhaps to, to other founders uh, listening in? Well, I, you know, I think one of the most impactful things that we did at around 20 employees and we're about uh, just you know, a little north of 200 employees now, is at around 20 employees, we, you know, we had a strong culture. We care a lot about our value system and the culture that surrounds that value system. And early on as a founding team, I have two co-founders, uh, we were really intentional and, and thoughtful about you know, what those values were. It's why we chose to work together. We're fortunate in that we're very different. In a lot of ways, we bring different skill sets to the table, but we're really aligned around the value system that drives us and the type of organization that we want to build that aligns with the value system. And uh, right around 20 employees, we moved from having an implicit value system to an explicit one. And all I mean by that is we wrote it down. And it seemed a little bit early at the time to be doing that, because if you join as the 20th employee, it's really not hard to discover what makes the place tick, what, you know, what behaviors are rewarded and discouraged and so forth. But we took the time uh, over like a quarter, and it was a huge investment of time. I mean, just like hours and hours in uh, around a conference table, really trying to get at how do we articulate the values that really matter uh, to this organization in a durable and, and and easy to understand way. And we involved the entire organization of of twenty at the time in that process. Every employee at the company, not just the founders, was involved in translating our implicit value system to an explicit one. And I'm just reminded of how beneficial that was as we've transitioned to COVID. And we've onboarded probably 40 employees plus maybe uh, since COVID started. And, and if we hadn't have done that work at 20 people to try to imagine a, a company of 200 people, even 100 people trying to align around a common value system 
at that scale seems virtually impossible. And so I think my generalizable kind of like company building principle would be how how very important it is to do this early on and to be thoughtful about it. And, you know, the, the people that you hire become the company. And so having a mechanism to ensure that you're hiring the right people, that you can align them against it, the value system that matters to you is is incredibly important. So I think that's probably the number one thing that comes to mind anyway. Alex, that's a great place to to, to wrap. For people who want to uh, follow you for your, in your work and learn more about uh, Juniper, where, where can you point them to? Uh, well, you can find us online at, at, at junipersquare.com. I maintain a uh, very uh, a very vacant Twitter uh, account, so I, I'm sad to say that uh, that that, um, that there's not going to be much you can find uh, on my on my Twitter account. But uh, uh, but junipersquare.com and uh, and Juniper Square on Twitter is probably the best way. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Alex. It's been a great episode. Yeah, thank you, Eric. It was my pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.